here was uh, you're surrounded by incredible people who all do the same thing. They feel they have a calling to change the world. Uh, you know, and, and, and being surrounded by that and the pressure of that just puts you down a path of like, what can I do with this kind of like single precious life I've got? You know, and, and that's how I guess my calling continue to evolve uh, over those years. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and we're speaking with John Fong, the Chief Revenue Officer of Australia's leading property marketplace, Domain. With a stellar investing repertoire both here and overseas, he reveals the Google job that opened doors for him, his family's investing practices and what exactly his granny said that had him start investing at 18 years old. With more than two decades of investing experience, Fong recognizes the value of time in his line of work. With great detail and smart precision, he makes certain he spends his days wisely. Uh, grew up here in Sydney, uh, spent the last 20 years overseas in Europe uh, and the US and a bunch of different places. Now back uh, to where I grew up in Sydney's North Shore. Uh, I've been a property investor for 25 years uh, and I'm also the Chief Revenue Officer at Domain, uh, one of Australasia's largest property portals and marketplaces. So Domain is one of the most uh, loved and used uh, property portals in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, we have about 8 million Australians using us in every month uh, to find property and and obviously, many people use us to try and sell their property. Uh, so I'm responsible for the revenue uh, and for managing our customers. Uh, that's about 500 people on my team. About half of those people are in sales. Uh, and their response is to look after primarily real estate agents who are recommending domain uh, to help people sell their house. Uh, and then there's a few hundred people in our customer support team who, once people are using these, if they have any problems or changes, uh, they come to that team. So. That's my responsibility. Uh, we sell a bunch of different products, uh, not just you know the ability to be found on the domain app and the domain website, but a lot of products just for real estate agents, uh, you know, like a, a DocuSign like product for like called Real Time Agent, some SaaS products like called Price Finder, which helps people get market intelligence. Uh, and so, in any given day, I'm always thinking about how to make it easier for our customers, real estate agents, to help their customers, people trying to buy and sell houses, uh, and all the things that are involved in that. As much as his passion about his work, Fung still rightly makes it a point to devote time for his family and in taking care of his health. Four-year-old, two-year-old and four-month-old, all girls. So it is, it's lots of fun, lots of cuteness and uh, not much sleep. But up early, in theory, it involves a run in the morning. Uh, that hasn't happened for about a month now. Uh, but uh, I'd say that a few times a week. Really, it's, it's work and family you know, right now. Uh, that, that dominates work is... Lots of fun. I get to travel around Australia because we have we obviously have customers and and, and, and house sellers everywhere, uh, which is fantastic. And then you know uh, once work finishes at five or six o'clock, then it's family, family, family uh, to the end of the day. So my life is pretty simple in that regard now. Well, like many tech companies, uh, we really want to provide uh, a lot of options for our, our people. You know, most of my team are actually on the road a lot of the time. They're they you know they're they're the main point of contact for real estate agents. Uh, but you no, know, for most of our most of our companies is hybrid. Uh, in reality, I'm in the office most days for at least some of the day and then I'm interstate uh, once or twice a week. So uh, I'm at home for at least part of the day and then uh, you know, around the rest of the time. With a good balance of humor and sincerity, Fong gives an inside look into his past and his family's roots while he flips the pages of his childhood. Well, I think the first thing I can say is I think you and me have a lot in common. 
uh, you know, uh, judging by mutual backgrounds. But I mentioned before, I, I grew up in Sydney's North Shore. Uh, I grew up in a suburb called Gordon, uh, and I'm currently in Pimble now, so uh, which is the next suburb across. Uh, you know, and it was it was such a privilege uh, growing up here. It's it's beautiful. It's leafy. There's lots of sports. I was particularly good at sport, uh, but I just you know enjoyed every part of it. Uh, I had the chance to go to. Um, uh, school called Knox Grammar School uh, here in Sydney, which uh, was lots of fun, uh, lots of obviously lots of work, uh, but in terms of they encourage you to do sport, music, and, and I just really enjoyed all those things. I went to Sydney Grammar in St Ives, uh, and then Knox was Warunga, so you know, quite a quite a you know a very fortunate experience. My my parents were from Malaysia, and from Hong Kong. They migrated to Australia before I was born, so you know that, that that's all I've known, and, and they've always lived around this area. Family spread in Malaysia, Singapore, and Hong Kong. I think there was a time, actually, before kids came along, where I was probably there every year. Uh, and then, as I mentioned before, I was away from Australia most of the last 20 years. Uh, I still made it back to Australia quite a lot and to Singapore and Hong Kong with some regularity. But those trips have decreased, you know, since since time has gone on. But yeah, there's a lot of relatives there and, and there are amazing places to visit as well. Further speaking on the topic of growing up in Sydney's North Shore, Fong dishes out precious memories from high school and what he loves doing as a kid. Yeah, I think for me, uh, I love doing everything. I think uh, going back to Knox, there is this almost vision of, they call it the Knox Mad. It's a single-sex school. so uh, and, and the whole idea is almost this, it's built on the premise of a Renaissance man, which is, yeah, study is really important, but you should try and expose yourself to a multitude of different things. You know, you should understand your sports, your music, your arts, different languages, travel. Uh, and I was very, very fortunate that that was really where I was at. I love doing everything. Uh, I was I was kind of, I loved playing sports, was no good at sports, but loved it. You know, I, I loved music. I was forced to play piano from an early age, uh, you know, and got good enough at piano that by the time I went through my rebellious teenage years, I said, I'm not going to play piano anymore. Uh, I realized that actually at church uh, and in clubs, like actually uh, it was really helpful to play piano, uh, you know, and that was something which I, I really got into. So I loved volunteering. I spent a lot of time at church uh, being a youth leader and organizing camps. Uh, and then just loved like music and acting and the arts and uh, debating and public speaking. So just loved all those different things. And I was very grateful to uh, many great schools here in Australia. But I think Knox in particular just really allowed exposed me to those different things in between lunch times and after school and before school. And it was quite close to home and quite complimentary. Living a well-rounded life, being active with his studies and involved in many activities. Fong was very purposeful with his life after high school. I mentioned I was quite heavily involved in church. I had a real conviction uh, in my teenage years that I wanted to basically become either a missionary or a pastor or lead up a non-profit. Great. You know, I kind of looked and said, ah, oh, this business world is not for me. I really enjoy business, but like, you know, I want to get out there and, you know, I guess serve people, you know, in, in that sense, in that ministerial sense. Uh, and so uh, a lot of elements of that are still with me, which I'll, I'll talk to later. But when I thought about... Uh, when I finished Knox, I was really looking for a place where, hey, where can I get work experience? Where can I get uh, study something with a view to bringing that actually back into the church or back into a nonprofit? Excellent. Excellent. And so when I thought about that, uh, I was fortunate enough to go to similar Alma Mater to U, to University of South Wales. And they had a program there, this, this co-op program, uh, where the whole focus was information systems and management. So it was actually three things I was passionate about. It was business, so I did an accounting major and things like that. It was information technology, uh, so I did an honours honors degree, an honours major in information systems, and the focus was on leadership and management. And my whole idea was, great, I'll do that, I'll get some work experience, and then I'll go off to the mission field or whatever it is. So that was very much my, uh, my thinking leaving high school. As he reflects over the positives from being involved in church, Fong contemplates on the good 
and the not-so-good observations he has with the organization. I was very heavily involved in church for most of my life. That has waned uh, as kids have come along. Uh, but it was a, a huge part of my life. It was a huge part of what influenced me, I think in good ways and in and some ways which I still struggle with. I think the very benevolent way was, you know, church, we even call it a church service, right? So the whole notion of, okay, you're at church, you're regular, how are you going to serve? Are you going to play an instrument? Are you going to serve morning tea? Are you going to preach? Preach, you're going to lead a small group for was like all those things, right? So it was very, very obvious even if not stated that, hey, if you want to serve, you can serve in a part-time capacity, but what if you could serve in a full-time capacity? So I think that was, that was many of the positives notion of like a, a life of service was very much ingrained, you know, upon the thinking of the church I was at, you know, at, at, during, during my formative years. And I think a lot of the, the leaders and the mentors I looked up to, you know, that defined their life. They were either a full-time pastor or they were doing some kind of job, but, you know, but, but doing a lot of work, 30, 40 hours of church work on the side, which... I think was a big influence to me. I can also see some of the troubling aspects where all of those people probably over-prioritize, you know, church and ministry over over their families, you know, over their own uh, physical and mental health. So I think it was, that was very much the influence in better ways and worse ways. Unbeknownst to Fong at the time, his life took a turn to a different corner after joining the co-op program in UNSW, a direction that would surprise even him. So I think I went to that cult with that mantra of like, okay, great. I want to serve other people. Um, I want to get a range of experience to serve other people. And this degree helps me get work experience, you know, and it helps me get, uh, you know, uh, some real great learnings about business technology and leadership. I think when it came to the end of that journey, my original expectation was great. You know, now I'm going to go and go to Bible college or go join a nonprofit. But the reality is like, I, I didn't feel ready. You know, and, and the world of business started opening up and it was, I really enjoyed, I still really enjoy business and technology. And so I think a lot of how that shaped my calling is to go from, great, you know, my job is to get a job at a nonprofit or a church and that's my destination. And I think the way that that changed and that evolved was, hey, my calling, my purpose may or may not be a destination, but there are I don't know. The world is such a changing place. My calling is to build up a set of skills around leadership, business and technology which can then be used in many forums. It could be used in a church. It could be used as a nonprofit volunteer. It could be used in a family, or it could be used to run a corporation where that can have a lot of social good, hopefully, right in the end. And I think that conviction, I guess, came to be my 20s. And that was a big part of why I wanted to go down the consulting path. Because I think that consulting company, I ended up working for McKinsey out of, out of, out of university. Their big selling point is, we're going to give you a whole range of experiences. We're going to teach you a generalist set of skills around problem-solving leadership and technology. And you're going to apply that for us, for customers who are going to pay McKinsey, not you, McKinsey, a lot of money. You've got a lot of great experiences. Uh, and then you'll be able to use that. And, and that's why those consulting companies are often great CEO building grounds. It kind of teaches that general management skill set. So I was very fortunate to get into McKinsey uh, at the time. This is back in the, in the early 2000s. Uh, and that led me down a path of being surrounded by amazing people who then asked, hey, after a few years of McKinsey, what are you going to do? I said, what did you do? I said, well, we all got our MBAs or our graduate degree. Said, great. I'll go back to UNSW. And they said, well, UNSW is a great college. But, you know, what if you go anywhere in the world? Where would you go? You know, and that got me down a path of, uh, you know, I applied to all these Ivy League schools in America, was lucky enough to get into Stanford. Uh, and, and going to Stanford was a, a life-changing experience. I'd always lived in the same postcode my whole life when St. Ives were born. You know, and, and going here was... Uh, you're surrounded by incredible people who all want to do the same thing. They feel they have a calling to change the world. Uh, you know, and, and, and being surrounded by that and the pressure of that just puts you down a path of like, 
what can I do with this kind of like single precious life I've got? You know, and, and that's how I guess my calling continued to evolve uh, over those years. That was 2005, 2007. Uh, so I've been working for McKinsey for about two years. Uh, and I end up, uh, you know, leaving there and working in Africa for a bit for about six months and then, you know, off to business school in the States. Oh, that's wonderful. And what were you doing in Africa? I was working for uh, the US government there, actually. Oh, nice. A subcontract called TechnoServe. And it's a thing that a lot of uh, ex-consultants do when they're at that, I guess, that career break stage of life. And they have this program where you can volunteer for the US government uh, to, to go. And the US government has a lot of aid they deploy to, to, to developing countries. Uh, and, you know, they, they bring you in and go like, great, here's some entrepreneurs. They've got a company. It's going okay, but it's got problems. Like, fix it. You know, and, and even though I knew nothing about chickens, which later became my specialty, uh, you know, there is, you know, that the value of that general skill set you learn, you know, at, at university to the degrees we had and, and at, at, at places like McKinsey, we can really actually add a lot of value to an entrepreneur there. So I end up kind of volunteering there for a few months and they end up giving me a, a kind of a full-time job there as a project manager to try and help turn around the Mozambican chicken industry. So I ended up staying there for about half of 2005 and went back in 2006. So it was, a, again, an incredible experience and one that seems very far from the world of, uh, of nappies and young kids and, and the life we have right now. Coming up after the break, Fong gives us a thrilling in-depth account of his journey from Australia to the US to the Republic of Ireland and then finally back to Australia. Yeah, so I, I did my first year at, at Stanford, got the job at Google, spent three months at Google, uh, then went back to finish my second year uh, at Stanford and then end up joining Google full-time afterwards. The pivotal moment he found himself in as he tithered between selling in the US or returning to Australia. But at the same time, we thought, oh, you know, like we have all of my family, my cousins back in Sydney. What if we just, you know, look for jobs here as well, just see what came up. He opens the door to that moment with his grandmother that paved the investing journey at the young age of 18. And when I was 18, my, my granny, who, who you know played a huge role in raising me, sat me down and said, hey, John, here's a book. We are going to buy a property. You've got some income now. You have an income before you. We're going to buy a property. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Sham, and you're listening to Property Investory. With eagerness and care, Fong continues to share what it was like to take postgraduate studies while pursuing the next steps of his career. It takes about two years. I did an MBA and a, actually a master's in education as well, which was also really interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then what happens is uh, the American system is it goes for over two years and then they have a basically three-month summer break in the middle and typically you do a summer internship. Uh, a lot of Australian universities or MBAs are similar. Uh, and I had the good fortune of, uh, at that time, Australia had just qualified for the World Cup uh, for the first time in 36 years. Uh, that, that, was, that, was happening, that was happening in Germany. My sister had just moved to, to London. She was based there. So I was like, I've got to get to Europe, ideally in London. And then each weekend, I'll go watch the World Cup games or, or do, some, do some fun stuff. Awesome. And uh, the only company that was really hiring at the time that wasn't a consulting company or a bank uh, was, uh, was Google. Uh, a small company back then, uh, this is back in 2006 or 2005, 2006. So uh, I started off as an MBA marketing intern at Google uh, back in 2006, based in London and had an amazing summer there. Uh, so two years, over, uh, two years overall uh, at, at Stanford with a, a small internship in the middle. The way it works is, you know, uh, I think business school is probably about 40 weeks in the year. Yeah. So it's like a 12-week break. In that 12-week break, everyone does an internship, basically everyone. Most people would just do one in, you know, in America, right? But for me, it was like, wait, let me try and do one in London and 
and so happened Google were offering, you know, internships in London at the time for the for the for, for the background I had, which was marketing in this case. So, yeah, so I, I did my first year at, at at Stanford, got the job at Google, spent three months at Google, uh, then went back to finish my second year uh, at Stanford, and then end up joining Google full time afterwards. Traveling back and forth between the US and Europe has certainly earned Fong notable rich life experiences. But there was one experience with a particular company that really stood out to him. Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, you know, I, I was very fortunate at the time. There was a lot of great technology jobs. And Google did one thing, which is a bit, they've stopped doing it because actually it was quite unsuccessful. But to a lot of MBAs, uh, what they did was offered full-time management positions, even though most of us had never managed anyone. It was like, hey, you seem high potential. Yeah, you can do stuff. Yeah, they actually stopped the program because it was not successful. There was a lot of rejection there. Like, oh, actually, you're not a very good manager yet. Uh, typically, what a company would do is, um, you know, offer a position as an individual contributor, and then you learn skills and, and look for the right management opportunity. But, you know, that was a big selling point for me. Like, hey, you can go and manage a team. And, and actually, the, the job I took was in, in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, they were that's they have a large operations base there. Uh, it's thousands upon thousands of people now. And I was managing uh, a search engine operations team. Uh, looking after a lot of European countries. I'm managing about a team of 10 to 15 people, my first full-time management experience. Uh, and that was incredible. Uh, a lot of the reason that was appealing to me was because, you know, as per my calling, I'm trying to build skills around leadership, technology, business. And I think so much of it's just practice, you know, and they were offering a chance to get that practice right now. I was like, great, well, Google seems cool. And never lived in Ireland before, never been to Ireland before, but that sounds cool. You know, they seem very friendly. And ended up spending the next six and a half years there uh, in a range of different roles. Uh, first as a leading a technical operations team, and then about 16 years ago, got my start in, in sales. Uh, so that was that was also really cool. Just I'd never sold anything before. Uh, this is back in not 16 years, about 2009, uh, running a small sales team at what was a very small part of Google called Google Cloud, and that ended up being where I worked for the next 10 years. After that, at Google, it was again a very fortunate, very lucky experience, and uh, one more chance where I got to learn about the cloud and learn about sales. Uh, you know, for for the first time in my life. Evidently invigorated by his memories of living in Ireland, Fong emphasizes how grateful he is for the opportunities and experiences he had there. It's an amazing place. Um, you know, Europe is full of Aussies, uh, so Aussies are pretty well loved everywhere. Uh, Ireland, uh, and I, Ireland's a very special place to me. I end up spending six and a half years there. I'm, I'm actually an Irish citizen uh, because I spent so long there. I've got a godson there. I've got one of my, be- you know, some of my best friends are there. Uh, you know. It is a place where it's very, very welcoming, but a lot of foreigners like me have remarked that it's it's actually difficult to get settled there, uh, you know, uh, because Irish people have tend to live in Ireland their whole life. Uh, you know, they, a lot of Irish do leave. They end up coming to Australia, to Bondi Beach, you know, settling here. But uh, it, it can be quite a close, like literally all my friends, not only did they go to school together, but their parents went to school together. Wow. It's a very, very small town in, in a sense, and it's, and it's beautiful and lovely in that way. And I think I consider myself very fortunate where, you know, one of my things was I still do a lot of church stuff. My big priority was like, I need to build community. I'm going to find a church. And that's what I did, you know, from day one. And that was really, really helpful uh, because then I, I was able to to get stuck in uh, to, to church. I was able to forge a lot of local community, you know, playing piano, leading small groups, all those kind of fun things that really help you feel settled and getting to know people. I'd see some of my Irish friends every single day. Uh, I was a single guy having fun, uh, you know, getting to their families. And it was it was just a wonderful, a rich, a unique time of life. Of course, it was no surprise that Fong's passion for serving in the church in Australia also spilled over to his adventure in Ireland. 
by the end of my time in, in Australia, I'd, I'd started to be on uh, like boards of directors and councils. So I went to a church called Wesley Mission and I was part of their, their leadership council. And it was interesting to serve in that strategic way, you know, that kind of like more managerial way rather than kind of hands-on. And I think I was able to do that a lot uh, in, in Ireland, actually. I was able to get involved with the Church of Ireland there. We, we ran a church plant, which is, for those who know, it's kind of like a church startup, you know, there and, and learning about finances and learning about, you know, denominations and and also a lot of the brokenness in leadership, like any company or organization, there's challenges and, and how do you deal with that? So I think for me, I, I had a very, very fortunate, I guess, intersection, you know, of what I was learning at my work, what I learned in my studies and what I was able to do in nonprofit and church. And each of them kind of cross-fertilized each other, uh, which was very much, I guess, what as a teenager I'd hoped for, but had no concept of how that would work out. Interestingly, the technology path that Fong was walking on at this point of his career did not end with Google. I was with Google 13 years. Uh, eventually, if you want to keep climbing, you end up at headquarters. And this to me happened about, uh, I guess, 2012, 2013. I'd been leading European teams, well, I'd been leading European countries, and then I was leading entire European teams. And then I was asked to lead global teams. So I was leading this global pre-sales team uh, for Google Cloud uh, out, of, out of Ireland. And then I was just traveling to the US all the time and basically became pretty clear. Like, if you want to keep progressing, uh, you don't want to be on a plane the whole time, you know, you want to be in headquarters, right? And uh, I, I wasn't married or things like that. I was still a lot more flexible. Uh, and so in 2013, I moved back to where I'd gone to business school in Silicon Valley uh, and kind of, you know, started life there. And so that was with Google. I was able to have a, a range of different roles. It was all with Google Cloud. One was running their, their agent network, which actually was a great precursor to my time at Uber and now at Domain, where primarily they sell cloud products through agencies, not direct to customers. Uh, so I had a bunch of different roles there running sales teams and agency sales teams. Um, so, you know, did that for about five or six more years. And then in 2019, had the chance to do a very similar thing, run a uh, account management team and a customer engineering team at Uber. Uh, Uber was starting a, a business group. Uh, so it was there from 2019 to 2021. So I ended up being in Silicon Valley the whole time, getting married and have a bunch of kids on the way. With Uber's brand already growing globally at the time he was invited to join them, Fung took the wheel of his new position with both hands. I think Uber, I mean, it started about 10 years before then. Yeah. Already by kind of 2013, 2014, it was quite popular in America. Um, I think it was probably around 2015, 2016. They start to get very mainstream around the whole world. Um, and by that time, uh, that was the point in time, I think 2017, where they went through their own organizational crisis. Their CEO was like, you know, basically uh, you know, was replaced and there was some very material cultural issues. So even by that time, 2017, they were quite large. So by the time we got to 2019, their culture had changed a lot. Uh, you know, it was a bit more, a lot more Google-like, a lot more friendly, a lot more family-friendly. Um, they had a new CEO for a few years by that time. And I was along a part of a, a kind of a fledgling group, which was particularly selling Uber to business travelers, uh, Uber businesses. Uh, it's a fantastic group. It's, it's grown a lot since. Uh, and by that time, I was brought on board to professionalize our experience, you know, for business travelers and create like a, an easier expense uh, system, you know, uh, slightly different products, uh, manage those accounts, manage the big deals, actually a lot of consulting companies uh, primarily who have a lot of business travelers. So, you know, that was my role and they're already quite big by that stage. As he talks about working with Uber at Silicon Valley, Fong takes a moment to reflect on the slice of life where he met his wife. Yeah, I met my wife shortly after moving to the States, like early 2014. We got married in, in 2015. Uh, we had our first kid in, in 2018. Uh, so she's now four and a half. We had another kid during COVID uh, and she's uh, almost three uh, now. So 
that all happened. Uh, they were they were both born in in in, in Silicon Valley, uh, where, where we met and had settled. They had American accents, and and now they've got Australian accents. But yes, the the first few years of life were in America. Interestingly, life took a bit of a dramatic turn for Fong when Uber decided to make considerable changes in their company. So this is uh, mid twenty twenty one. Uh, and Uber was going through, I guess, some restructuring conversations. And I was leading a global team, and and uh, you know, it, it was basically a heads up that look, it's this is this structure is not going to stay the same. This happens to big organisations. We structure, we restructure. It's part of the deal. And so I, I was faced between, you know, I guess staying at Uber in a, in a smaller role, uh, or, or looking for a, a, a different a different possibility. Something that all happens to us. Uh, and I think at that time, my assumption was great. You know, Silicon Valley is great. Our friends are here. My business school friends are here. You know, uh, you know, kids are selling here. Let, let's stay here. And so I was looking around, uh, and there were some really interesting jobs uh, in that technology leadership space. Um, but at the same time, we thought, oh, you know, like we have all of my family, my cousins back in Sydney. What if we just, you know, look for jobs there as well? Just see what came up. Over the course of the next few months uh, of of searching and looking and reflecting and chatting and you know, seeking, it became pretty clear that it would be cool to spend some time here in Australia. You know, to experience that, to give our kids that experience. Uh, we have we have much bigger family here. Uh, my wife has less family in the states, and actually, there were some really interesting jobs here. Really interesting jobs here, uh, in terms of particularly uh, folks who are companies that were looking for my skill set, which is basically scaling companies to go global, particularly the technology space. That had been my life for the last ten or fifteen years, and in a place like Silicon Valley, there's thousands of people like me. In a place like Australia, if you want a skill set of background like mine, I'm, I'm actually pretty unique. Uh, and so it turned out at the time that uh, Domain were looking for a head of sales, a, a chief revenue officer, and the CEO of Domain, a guy called Jason Pellegrino, he was also at Google for a decade, uh, and he obviously was quite familiar with the kinds of things that I could do, and it was quite complementary with the direction he was going to bring the company. So there was a lot of really interesting possibilities in Australia, but Domain was a great fit. I thought it was a great company. It was a chance for me to, to be on the, uh, on, on the executive team, which I'd never had that experience. And it was in property, which we haven't spoken much about, but was really my life's passion, my family's my family's work. You know, my dad being a real estate agent and me being an investor for you know over twenty years by that stage. So it was just a wonderful compilation of leadership, business, real estate, uh, and growth uh, all coming together. With undeniable zeal in his voice, Fung delves into how his property journey unexpectedly started at such a young age. I was fortunate enough to be on a, a scholarship at a university. It didn't pay that much. It did pay for university fee, fees and a bit of pocket money. And when I was 18, my, my granny, who, who you know played a huge role in raising me, sat me down and said, hey, John, here's a book. We are going to buy a property. You've got some income now. You have an income before. We're going to buy a property. <laughs> okay. Else. It was just such a big part of, you know, I'll speak to particularly the kind of the Asian-Australian migrant culture at the time. She was Malaysian-Chinese. It was just a given that when you had money, you put into property. Yep. That's what you did. That was, you know, first your family home and then like investment property, depending if you were, if you, were, you know, whatever, whatever it was. And so for me, that was, I guess, the practices of my family. So my, my parents, when they came over from Malaysia and Hong Kong, they were not wealthy. But the first thing they did was they bought a property, right? They'd have their family home. They would buy investment properties. Some went well, some didn't. But it was just the, the investment vehicle that they had grown up with and that they would pass down. 
right? And my dad actually was a real estate agent after he was in corporate as well. So, you know, by that time, uh, you know, he had become a real estate agent in the, in the 90s. Uh, this is the, the late 90s I'm talking about when I started my investing journey. He had already begun to do a lot of research, both as a real estate agent, as an investor, into different parts of Australia investing in. You know, most of the investment was outside of Sydney. Uh, we invested first in Perth and, and Cairns and places like that. So I was very, very fortunate that I was from a culture, and actually my wife also very similarly, where that was just a given. That's what you did with your money because of the leverage, because of the relative safety, uh, because, you know, you could touch and feel it. Uh, and that because it was just a practice. So yeah, at 18, I first got into the game. We first started looking at, at stuff in Sydney because we could visit it. And we looked for things that had, I guess, people magnets. And one of the best people magnets are universities. And so around that Broadway, Paddington, you know, University of Sydney, University area, there are a bunch of these university lodges like Uni Lodge, right? And these are apartments, this is back in the day, that, that was $60,000, you know, in the 90s, right? And just little studio apartments that typically, you know, folks from overseas or outside of Sydney who are studying, they could stay on campus, they could stay close by. So these were good because they had, you know, pretty secure cash flows. They were going to be, you know, you know, used for most of the years, uh, you know, unless something terrible happened like COVID, you could count on people being in that, right? We had no concept of COVID at the time. So that was my first investment, $60,000. I mean, that, that thing is worth 10, 20 times now, but it was a very, very good cash flow positive property and a good thing to do. In the next episode of Property Investory, John Fung eagerly shares in his great detail the highlights and upturns of his initial investments. We were very fortunate that the first few bets we made, particularly Perth with this place called Armydale uh, and then Cairns, we did really, really well. The admirable perspective he holds on to in times of unexpected and gut-wrenching circumstances. For me, I had three properties there at the time and you know, I was fortunate that, you know, I didn't lose money, but, you know, I got capital growth and it all disappeared. And He discusses the time-tested and effective strategy that he and his wife implement in their own property journey. For us right now, our, our concept is we maximize the leverage we have, we maximize how much we're, we've, we've bought out, we maximize our time in market, and we don't attempt to time the market. And that's next time on Property Investory.